You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. We see in the chapters leading up to Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, that it is packed, super packed with gospel truths. It's overflowing with these awesome golden nuggets of truths for us as Christians, for us as Christians. It kind of reminds me of when I used to work at McDonald's, and I worked there for five faithful years. I remember working in the kitchen, and all my friends knew, all my friends knew that if they were to come in the, at McDonald's that I worked at, if they were come to the counter and they saw me through the kitchen, they knew that if they ordered a 10 piece of chicken nuggets, that I would put so much in that box of nuggets. So I remember, see, my friend Jesse came in, I saw him, notification came on the screen. I remember I would just grab that box, grab the scoop, open up the UHC cabinets, count one, two, 13 nuggets, and I would stuff that into the box, close it, throw it into the heating landing zone. And he'd open that box with so many more nuggets than he was, um, that he was promised. Likewise, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul was stuffing that letter with all of these gospel, gospel truths, with all these golden nuggets, all of this theology, talking about the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, talking about how, hey, Ephesians, hey, you know, whenever I pray to the Lord, I can't stop thanking him for you. I love you guys so much to, to the oneness that we are in Christ. And now to the, the mystery of the gospel and for how awesome that is for us. I love it. It's dense with all of these gospel truths. So we find ourselves now at Ephesians 4, the start of Ephesians 4, and Paul, he writes, he goes, I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And right away, we see the word therefore and how it marks the transition from all of those golden nuggets to now where we are right now to the application of how us as Christians, how we should live, how we should respond to all those truths, how we should respond to all of those golden nuggets. So he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, Similar to how we did in Ephesians 3, Paul, we see himself identifying as a prisoner for the Lord. Just even looking at Paul's testimony, the Apostle Paul, one who suffered for the gospel, one who is so serious at his faith, that he went through numerous imprisonments for the sake of the gospel. So he's saying, hey, Ephesians, I know I'm talking about I suffered for the gospel, take me seriously. He's also reminding them a little gentle reminder, I think even a good reminder for myself that the, that the life of a Christian, the life of a Christian is costly and we're not always going to be comfortable because of our faith. So continuing on in the verse, he goes, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul starts this chapter off by urging the Ephesians to walk. So church, now what is this walk? And what I think it's to walk in God's will. 
to walk in God's will, to enter through that narrow gate, to walk on that narrow path because the path is wide. The path is so wide that leads to destruction. So many people walk on this wide path. Not many walk on this narrow path. So basically, I think that he's referring to the Christian walk that we've all been called to for those of us who are Christians, all that we've been predestined to. So since this is a letter to the Ephesians church, it's not an individual letter to one person. It's not personal. It's not personal, but as a group, together as a collective. And he's saying to the Ephesians church that they should pursue this Christian walk that they've been predestined to, that they should pursue this walk together, united in Christ. Well, let's just pause right there. So Paul, he spends three chapters talking about all of this theology And then the first point of application for us Christians, for the Ephesians, the first point is unity. It's unity. It's not spiritual gifts. It's not marriage. It's not children obey your parents. It's not even the armor of God. But Paul starts it right off with unity. Hmm. So here's what I think. But I think also affirmed by Paul, he actually checked my message for any heresy. So here's what I think, but also affirmed by Paul. All right. Here it is. Unity is first importance. Unity is first importance because without unity, the church is nothing. Unity is first importance because without it, the church, we have nothing. You know, if we're not loving each other, what's the point? The reality is, Christians, we're going to hurt each other. I'm going to hurt you. You're going to hurt me. But if we're not forgiving one another, then Christians, friends, Harvest Niagara, then what are we doing? In 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3, it says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong, or clanging symbol. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so, if, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And verses 3, it goes, if I, have, if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain absolutely nothing. Church, we gain absolutely nothing. So going back to verses 2. Paul, he's saying, guys, even if you understand the theology to a T, have all the head knowledge, you know it all. Or even if you have faith, crazy, crazy faith, so it's to move mountains, so it's to move mountains, but you don't have any love in your hearts for your brother or sister. You have nothing. In verses 3, if you give everything that you have, if you tithe everything you have to the church, or even if you give your body up to be burned, and just like referring to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you do all of those things, all of those things for Christ, but if you have no love in your heart for your brother or your sister, then it says that right in the text. I'm not making this up. If you don't have any love in your heart, we're not going to gain anything. I see like the Apostle Paul Church, we got to be so passionate. we got to be so passionate for unity between our brothers and sisters. Ultimately, Paul is just a man, sinful man, 
So let's just check out what Jesus says. In John chapter 13, verses 34 35, Jesus is saying, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I loved you. You also are to love one another. And we see that this is a commandment. Jesus is not saying, oh, if you want to, uh, you can love one another, maybe. He's saying, no, this is a commandment. It's a commandment. Verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And he's saying, the world's going to know that you are my follower when you love your brother and your sister in Christ. And then now let's just fast forward to John 15, 12 to 13. It says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You see, at that time, they didn't know it, but Jesus was referring to how he was going to die for them on a cross. And he's saying, hey, you're going to love your brother and your sister so much so that you would even die for them. You would die for your brother and sister. Now in John chapter 17, Jesus, when he was in the upper room, even preparing in his heart to be betrayed, knowing exactly when and how he was going to be brutally murdered on a cross, when Jesus prayed, what did he pray for? One of the things that he prayed for in John chapter 17 was for unity. So if you can, John chapter 17, 21 to 23, if you can turn there real quick, we see that Jesus is praying here. He's referring to all believers, all believers in the faith. And he prays that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they, and he's referring to all of us, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. In chapter, and uh, verse 23, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, and I love them, even as you have loved me. And we see that Jesus, he's praying, praying to the Father, praying to the Father that we as believers, blood-bought, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would be one, that the church, that we would be one, just as the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are perfectly one. He's pleading to the Father. He's saying, God, the Father, I'm praying that they would be unified. I'm praying that they would be one because that's when the world the world sees that, that Harvest Niagara is perfectly one, completely one. See, that's when they're going to believe in Jesus Christ. See, that's when they're going to believe the love that Jesus Christ has for them and accept Jesus into their life. We see that Jesus, back in John chapter 17, that he's so passionate, so passionate about unity, so passionate about the church, being one. So friends, for all of us here, you watching online, the question is, are you passionate about unity? Is unity so important to your heart 
Are you someone who is so passionate about unity who, in an argument, cares way more about unity than having that last say? Someone who is so unwilling to sweep relationship issues under a rug because you know that you're just be creating a time bomb for later on if you just ignore those issues. Someone so willing to have difficult conversations with your brother or your sister or who you're just clashing with. Because you just want to pursue unity. Because you want to pursue the peacemaking. Maybe you are so passionate about unity and you're thinking in your heart, yes, yes, that's me. I'm so passionate about unity. And all those things, all those passages that you just went through, yes, amen, that's me. And if that's you, then praise God. I'm so thankful and so grateful for you. And I even think that there needs to be more brothers and sisters in the faith like you. But maybe you're not passionate about unity at all. Maybe you don't even care. Maybe you've been hurt. You're angry. You're not passionate about unity at all. Or maybe you are passionate about unity. Maybe you're saying, I think I'm passionate about unity, but just honestly, just looking at my family, looking at my church, looking at the world, I don't know. I mean, Jesus wanted these things, but I just kind of think it's impossible. Everyone is just so hurt. I want unity, but I don't think it can happen. And just considering all the nuanced, polarizing topics that we've all been discussing online, especially since last year, You know, Christians who love the Lord, but they're clashing with one another because of their opinions. Even from last year, you know, people saying, oh, no, all lives matter. Are you kidding me? All lives matter. And another group, but saying like, but wait, don't black lives matter too? And these people, they love the Lord. They love the Lord, but they're just clashing. They're just clashing. And, And even from people debating lockdowns, Debating mask wearing, debating whether or not social or civil disobedience is appropriate. Maybe you're thinking that you're passionate about unity, but when you look at the division in the church, look at the division in your family, you just find yourself just so paralyzed and just thinking, you know, I want to do something, but I don't even know where to start. And if I did, even if I found a place to start, I don't even know what I would do. And this is just very specific thing because I'm describing myself. Just find myself preparing for this message, just in some ways paralyzed, just thinking that unity is impossible. I think God saw that. God saw me trying to be faithful. Saw my little faith, thinking that unity is impossible. And then he reminded me last week, he reminded me last week of how much he cares, how much he loves me, but also of how he is so able, able to do far more abundantly than we can ever ask or think. You know, his ways are so much higher than our ways. And he's just waiting to blow our minds with what he can do, according to the power at work within us. And in that way, I think 
We're similar to the Ephesians church. And I think Paul, when he was writing Ephesians 4, he knew that, and he laid it out plainly so there was no room for confusion, plainly for simple people like me. So breaking down these verses in Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, I see Paul outlining three things, three steps that are critical for church unity. And he starts it in verses 2. He goes, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So for those of you who take notes, here's the first point. To be unified, we have to be forbearing with one another in love. We have to be forbearing with one another in love. We've got to have self-control and restrain under adversity and just be so slow, so slow to retaliate, so slow to express resentment. This is true in a marriage, true in a family, true in a church, and definitely, definitely essential for unity. So how do we be forbearing with one another in love? We see that Paul, he lists three virtues, three qualities, just taken right out of the text. The first one is with all humility. With all humility. Right to the Ephesians, Paul knew that in their culture that humility was regarded as distasteful, weak even. And to the prideful, if you were prideful, you were strong. You were the alpha. You were the leader. Philippians 2, verses 3, it says this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Count others more significant than yourselves. So you right now, so consider when you're having a heated discussion with a fellow brother and sister in Christ. Maybe someone you just firmly disagree with. You know that you guys are clashing on so many things. So you're just so frustrated that they can't see, that they can't see things from your perspective. So frustrated that this person, that they're not hearing you out. In humility, are you counting those people who are frustrating you, are you counting them more significant than yourselves? Are you counting their opinions more significant than, their, than your opinions? Their feelings more significant than your feelings? In that situation, what's the depth of your listening? How do you listen? Is your listening shallow? Where, where you only really listen to respond, you're just waiting for them to stop so you can cut them off and shove your opinion down their throat. Not fully understanding what they're saying, and clearly you don't even care because they're different than you, so you're just going to ignore what they're saying, so and clearly they're wrong. Is your depth of listening shallow? Or is your depth of listening deep? Maybe you don't even agree with what they're saying. You completely disagree with what you're saying, but in humility, you're listening to them. You want to hear your brother out. You listen to what your sister has to say, because even if you disagree, you love them. And and because God is calling you to humility, you hear them out. How do we be forbearing with one another in love, with all humility? And the second one, again, taken right out of the text with all gentleness, with all gentleness, not weakness, but strength under control. 
And we see here the Greek term, it describes a horse who is broken or well-trained. It's, no it's no longer wild and dangerous, but because of the practice and the coaching, this mighty horse is now gentle. So gentleness also characterized as one who is not eager to assert their personal rights. One who will look to the needs of others before looking to themselves. And in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, we see Jesus, he's sharing his heart towards us. He's sharing his heart towards us. And he shares that he is gentle and that he is lowly in heart. And Jesus also displayed the greatest act of gentleness when he took the penalty of sin on the cross for our sins. The ultimate act of gentleness, considering that he was perfect, the only person who lived a perfect life in all of history and all the time. Jesus, the only person who had every right, every right to deny the cross, every right to deny the cross and walk away from the physical pain and torture that he knew that he was going to receive. But God loved us so much so that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did not, did not, he did not deny his personal rights. He knew that God was going to even turn his back towards him for the very first time in history. He knew he was going to experience all that physical pain and torture. Christ died for us. He loved us. The ultimate act of gentleness. So how do we be forbearing with one another in love with all gentleness? And the last virtue, we can be forbearing with one another in love with all patience. With all patience. The Greek meaning long-tempered, an outward result of humility and gentleness. Proverbs 14, 29, it says this, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has hasty temper exalts folly. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. And when I read that passage, the passage and hear those words, slow to anger, I just think of my mom. I love my mom, she's great. Also, because I'm, I'm very annoying at home, and she's just so slow to anger, so shout out to my mom. But from the beginning of her marriage, my mom, she endured that classic mother-daughter-in-law feud. And some of you, you know what we went through. Maybe some of you are going through that right now, and we know that it's difficult. It was hard, you know, my siblings, we saw it and sometimes found ourselves in the middle at times. And it was difficult seeing our mom just like feuding with our Lola. And Lola just means grandma in Tagalog, and that's one of the Filipino languages. So just seeing our mom just feuding with our Lola all the time. And throughout it all, we just saw that our mom was just so humble, so gentle, just so patient, a woman of God who was so slow to anger, like how we just read. Even until the end. And towards the end of my Lola's life, we actually found out that she had dementia. And we, we had to transition her into a senior home. So when we moved from Brampton to Niagara eight years ago, uh, we transitioned her into another senior home in Niagara-on-the-Lake. And despite all the feuding that they went through throughout their whole lives living together. My mom actually visited 
my Lola at the senior home every single day, every single day of her life until the very end. Every single day to talk to her, to feed her, to care for her, to do her nails, fix her hair. And with my mom, she was not really good at Tagalog. And my Lola, having dementia, Tagalog was her first language, English was her second. And as the dementia progressed, her understanding of English just continually like, went down and down and down and down. And my mom, not being so good at Tagalog, she actually watched GMA, and that's just like one of the Filipino channels. She watched GMA so she could understand Tagalog a lot more. So when she went to talk to my Lola at the senior home, she could just connect. And there would be no language barrier at all. And just looking at my Lola's passing after that, looking, looking back at my mom just being so long-tempered, seeing an outward result of humility, We see that's gentleness. I see that's patience that my mom exemplified. And right now, the Lord is calling us to that with our brothers and sisters in Christ, the ones who we're refuting with. He's calling us to be patient, so, so patient with them. And this call. It's not the call for those super mature, holy Christians who never swear, who cover their ankles because they're so holy. You know, those Christians, they don't exist. This call is for you. This call is for me. And when I think of my mom's testimony, I'm just like, oh my goodness. It's wild. I can't believe my mom did that. Especially because I know that I'm not there with those people who frustrate me. I want to be there, and, you know, if you're like me, just let's pray for each other, that we would be able to get there, but with God's grace, with God's grace. To be unified, we have to be forbearing with one another in love, and we do that with all humility, with all gentleness, and with all patience. Second, to be unified, to be unified, we have to be eager for the unity in the Spirit, we have to be eager for the unity in the spirit. And this is what Paul says in verses 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul, he starts this chapter off. He starts this chapter off by saying, okay, you got to walk together with your Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. Walk this walk, right? And then he goes, you got to be humble. You got to be patient. You got to be bearing with one another in love. And now he's saying you got to be eager to maintain that unity, and in this passage, we see Paul exhorting the Ephesian church to unity. But this, this exhortation, it's not an exhortation to develop or work towards unity. Now he's saying that because of the gospel, because the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because you are his disciples. When Jesus died on the cross, you were actually bonded together, perfectly unified in peace. You are already one. Church, we are already one. And Paul is saying to the Ephesians, because you are already one, because when Jesus died on the cross and bonded us together, he's saying, okay, now, since you're one, you got to be eager to maintain that unity. you got to be eager to maintain the bond that we all have as Christians. we got to be passionate, so passionate about keeping that peace, just eyes laser focused to peace, to unity, no matter what. But I get it. 
that's just so much, so much easier said than done. And in so many ways, a couple ways I see that, even in my life, I see that division is sometimes so much easier. Division is so much easier. And, and if I may say, division is almost satisfying sometimes. It's like, okay, when you see an article on social media, maybe you're scrolling through your phone on Facebook, and you see this article or this post, right? And you see the lines with like everything that you believe, and you're like, hmm, I like that. I want to share it. I want to post it. But before you post it, like in your head, you imagine maybe four people at this church or just a brother and sister in Christ. There are four people in your head who maybe you don't like, or you know that if you posted this, it would tick them off. And you're thinking, hmm, yeah, this will definitely tick them off. Post. <laughs> and it's true, I've done it. And if you laughed, you probably did it too. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, oh my goodness, uh, am, I really, am I really being eager to maintain that peace that we have? No, I'm not. And it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm even more like the, the one in Romans 16, 17, when he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those. Watch out for Nathaniel. He causes divisions. He creates obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid Nathaniel. And in that moment, I'm like, oh, my goodness, I got to repent. I got to truly get on my knees. You see, Jesus, like, as we talked about in John 17, so passionate about unity, Am I being passionate about unity in that moment? No. Are we being passionate about unity in that moment? Being so eager to maintain that peace that Jesus died for? Or not? Truly, friends, how are we doing when we maintain that peace? Are we truly maintaining that peace? And honestly, to be eager for unity in the spirit, this is the response of a sinner a response of a sinner who has truly received grace. And since that they receive grace, they're so compelled, they're so eager to give it to their brothers and sisters in Christ. They know that, oh my goodness, I'm such a sinner. Jesus gave me grace. I need it. Fill me with grace. And when Jesus does that, and he will, and he will, when he fills us with grace, it's like, oh my goodness, my brother and sister, you hurt me so much. But since Jesus gave me all that grace, I want to give it to you. I love you. Let's maintain that, that peace that Jesus has for us. Colossians 3.13 says this, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, to forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must forgive. So you must forgive. To be unified, we have to be eager for unity in the spirit. And lastly, to be unified, we have to display our shared identity in Christ. We have to display our shared identity in Christ. Verses 4 to 6, it says this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. And right away, reading this, 
at least for me, I see that we find seven ones. And let's just go through that again. If you don't believe me, it's okay. I wouldn't. Okay, so there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. See those seven ones in an overwhelming sense of unity and oneness. And we see also that, that Paul, he, he identifies the spirit in verses 4, Jesus in verses 5, and God the Father in verses 6. So what I think, he doesn't do this to distinguish the Trinity, but he does this to show the significance of how each roles are so unique, so unique. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all of them so different, all of them with different roles, but perfectly unified as God, perfectly unified as God. And these three verses, again, an overwhelming sense of unity, the oneness that we already have as Christians. Galatians 2.20, says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So for those of us who are Christians, we have all been crucified with Christ. It's no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. So we die to our own sinful identities, and we put on Christ, and we identify with him. So what I'm talking about, it's not uniformity where we all look the same and talk the same and sound the same and dress the same, and we all agree that Dr. Pepper is gross. Amen? Amen? Yeah, amen. There you go. Okay, there's so much room for us to be different, so much room for diversity. You know, every tribe and tongue, and I love this, every tribe and tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, even with our differences. Colossians 3, verses 11, um, it says this. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. So what's a Scythian? I had to look it up because I didn't know. But Scythians, so from the Greeks' point of view, Scythians, they were violent, and this is just their point of view, violent, uneducated, uncivilized people who, because they're inferior, they were, they were to be treated as someone who was lower, someone with less dignity. And that kind of like hits hard, for, hits home for me. It's racism you see right there. But I love this verse because Paul is saying it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're Greek, if you're a Jew, if you're circumcised, uncircumcised. It doesn't matter who you are, you're black or you're white. It doesn't matter because when we become Christians, Christ is all, and he is in all of us. So we can still be different. So we can all still be so, so different. So for us today, us today, April 18th, 2021, as we move forward, even with this mask mandate, lockdowns, the vaccine, social distancing, it can differ. What you think, it can differ from your brother and sister in Christ. You know, but we can still be unified. 
We can even be unified in the fact that, okay, who really likes lockdowns? No one. I don't like it. You don't like it. Both sides, no one likes lockdowns. But what can really unify us is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the grave. Jesus Christ, absolutely dead. Absolutely dead. Jesus Christ, absolutely alive. So alive, talking and walking with his, his disciples. So that same Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit is in each one of us, perfectly bonding us together, unified as a church, perfectly unified. So before our political affiliations, our cultural backgrounds, our upbringings, church, our identity is first and foremost in Jesus Christ. So whether you like it or not, we're all a family. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, it says that we are a body of Christ and individually members of it. So for those of us who are saved, there is absolutely nothing that we can do to change that. There is no sin that we can commit to change the fact that we are all blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Amen. It's like my mom and my dad, my three siblings, we're all related by blood. And there's nothing that we can do because when we cut ourselves, we all bleed the same blood. Right? I can shave off my eyebrows and shave my head completely and tattoo hearts on my face. And they will all probably shun me, but <laughs> probably it's too bad because we all bleed the same blood and we're all family no matter what. And apparently some people say I'm looking like my dad. and it's, like, <laughs> it's okay, I think he's handsome, it's fine, it's fine. So even more than our blood families, when we are Christians, when we're bought with the blood of Christ, the blood that was spilled when Jesus died on the cross for my sins, for all of our sins, Jesus Christ, he didn't die for his bride to be divided over secondary things. And by no means am I saying that you just completely ignore these secondary things. You know, secondary issues are so important for us Christians to all wrestle with as Christians in our lives, and they definitely shape how we live our lives, to, to how we pray, to how we evangelize, even to how we worship. So I'm not saying neglect those things. Those are important things. But we shouldn't put those secondary things over Jesus Christ. The fact that we are all Christians because of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our King. Church, how, will we look, how about we look at what unites us rather than what separates us? And again, I'm not saying completely ignore everything else. But for us truly, truly to see our identity in Christ over everything. Because just as we read, Christ, Jesus Christ, he is everything. Church, let's pray. Oh, Father, truly these things... We all know it. We are so unable to do any of these things on our, on our own, Father. So I pray that you help us, be with us, help us to be truly united. And Father, we learn that we are already bonded, perfectly bonded together. So Father, I pray that you help us to act like that. So the world will truly, truly see that we are Christians and that you would be glorified. 
And Father, we thank you that in these things as we pray, we are praying to a God who is so able to do far more abundantly than we can ever ask or think according to the power at work within us, Father. So to you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.